Hey everybody, this is Dr. Jeanette Collazo, and you're listening to the Power of Why podcast, a show about human behavior in the workplace, productivity, human error, common sense, and critical thinking. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Power of Why podcast with your host, Jeanette Collazo. Anyway, I'm very happy because I'm going to talk today about a topic that I really like, but it's not an easy topic. It's one of those things that has taken me a lot of time sometimes to understand it, because sometimes it's something that it's applicable, if you will. And I'm talking about visual inspection, and I'm talking about why is it that sometimes we look but not always see. And that's why I wanted to discuss this because this is one of the skills and competencies that a lot of companies need, especially if you're manufacturing or you're approving documents or you're evaluating for defects. It's that eyeball inspection or that expectation that you're going to detect things just by looking at them. So there is an expectation that we capture things, that we are able to see things, and that's not always an effective way of doing it. Now, the problem is that companies, when they have this problem, what they do is that they try to increase the human or the eyeball detection. I don't even know how to explain it, but they try to increase the the likelihood of people detecting it, meaning, and let me just explain myself. For example, if I'm looking in a visual inspection, a vial, right? I have a vial and I have liquid inside of it. So once the vial is sealed, now it goes to the, uh, to the visual inspection area. And then you have people that are going to look at the vial and they're looking for foreign matter. They're looking for any type of substance that it's not part of the product meaning anything that could be there that it's not supposed to be there. You can find metal, you can find hair, you can find rubber, you can find glass. There are many things that you can find inside a vial. Now, here's the situation. Sometimes we miss things, right? And in this particular case, what I'm explaining is we try to increase detection by putting mechanisms. Like for example, in this, in this visual inspection that I'm talking about, sometimes you have, let's say, white foreign matter. Well, in those cases, if you want to be able to see it, you need a background that is black, right? So you put the vial and you look for it and that white or clear particle, it's supposed to be visible. And then there is the, the white background that it, it's intended for you to detect dark particles and dark foreign matter and all of that. So we do things to try to increase the possibility of people detecting, but we are not understanding that there are limitations when it comes to visual inspection. One of them is the fact that over some time there is eye fatigue and at some point you can't see anymore. Another element is the vigilance time of effectiveness. Uh, vigilance degrades over time, so you might be able to be very good detecting something at the beginning of your inspection, but that does not necessarily guarantee that over time, in the same circumstances, you will be able to see what's there. So that's why it's very difficult sometimes to explain to clients that, you know, it's not like I can predict when is it that you're not going to see it, because it's so many factors that are, you know, that need to be 
considered for this that it's not easy to explain. And there are other things that are basically just the way we see things. In reality, we don't see with our eyes. You know, we, we take a picture with our eyes and it goes to the back of our brain to the occipital love lobe. And then it goes to the middle of the brain to be understood or to analyze what we saw. And then it goes to the frontal lobe in which we act on it. So it's not that simple as you didn't see it. You know, it's not that difficult. I remember once we found, it was very interesting because when you talk about visual inspection, you're most of the times you think about finding something that is very small right? And that the reason why we don't see it is because it's very small. But there are instances in which what you're looking for is huge. It's right there, visible, and you still don't see it. And I remember this happened once with a vial. There was a big chunk of glass inside the vial, but it was big. It was almost the size of the vial. And for some reason, we missed it. Why? Because I'm not looking for big things. I'm looking for very small things. And that's the problem with visual inspection. So there is a very good book, and I've talked about this book before. It's called The Why We Make Mistakes, and it's from Joseph T. Hallinan. And he talks about many things about human error and why we make mistakes. And it's a very good book. So if you're interested, you can look it up. It's not that new, but very good. Not like we changed that much over time. A lot of people say, well, that psychology book is very old. Well, you know, when it comes to development of humans, when it comes to it, that doesn't change. The conditions change, but not necessarily, you know, the nature. We might be better over time or less good over time, but that's kind of a natural thing. Still, it's the same thing. It's We're talking about behavior, you know, it's not like it, technology or anything like that. So one of the things he mentions in the book is, is that we see a fraction of what we think we see. So that explains why we don't see everything around us. Now, you could train yourself to be able to see better things and so on. So it's like focus or concentration and some of the things that you can do. But the interesting thing here is that part of the part of the visual field that can be seen clearly at any given time is only a fraction of the total. We are seeing part of it, right? At normal viewing distances, for for instance, the area of clear vision is about the size of a quarter. So you're looking at a very big spectrum, but you're looking, but you're only seeing a very small fraction of what it's there. So that's why, you know, the, the ideals with the constraint by constantly darting about moving and stopping roughly three times a second. Okay, so now how do I predict that? Every three times a second, how, how do you measure that? Right? So that means that we need to understand that that's how we work. And I don't, you know, I, I, we continue to trust people for visual inspection. And I know there's a reason for that. You know, if you want to automate visual inspection, you have to invest in equipment, you know, for example, a vision system, a vision system. Now, one of the reasons why companies don't like vision systems is because, for example, I feel a vial and there is a bubble in the vial. So the vision system is going to detect that bubble as a foreign matter or some type of, you know, contamination. And then it goes to a reject area. And, you know, we're losing money and product when this happens because you have to discard that. Now, that excuse, it's not an excuse. 
Because even though you don't want to trust people with a visual inspection, you can trust people at least for a secondary inspection. Meaning that instead of me checking every single piece of, of product, then reduce that to a number of vials that or, or product that has been rejected. Why? Because we are expecting to find something wrong. All right. So if I'm expecting to find something wrong, the likelihood of finding it increases. So that's why I always recommend you can put a vision system and then a secondary inspection. It's going to be very good for coming from a human because I know what I'm looking for. I'm looking for a defect or a bubble. So, you know, that's the part in which humans are very good. The system is going to identify whatever is there. It's our job to determine of what, if whatever is there, it's a problem or something negative. Another interesting thing is the difference between men and women when it comes to looking and be able to see. So what it's seen as the eye move about depends in part on who is doing the seeing. Men, for instance, okay, so, you know, men see different things from those that women do. When viewing a mock purse snatching by a male thief, for, for instance, you're, you're watching and there is like a, a robbery, right? Women tend to notice the appearance and actions of the woman whose purse has been snatched. Men, on the other hand, were more accurate regarding details about the thief. Right-handed people have also been shown to remember the orientation of certain objects they have seen more accurately than left-handers do. So, as you see, it's not just about the, the action of paying attention and seeing something. It's about what it's our nature, what it's, you know, based on how we are wired. How is it that we come across, come, come about these things? As an example, and it's part of the, it's presented in the book. It talks about the fact that years ago, after the Hale Bob comet, made a spectacular appearance in the evening skies, investigators in England asked left and right-handers if they could remember which way the comet had been facing when they saw it. Right-handers were significantly more likely than lefties to remember that the comet had been face facing to the left. Handness is also the best predictor of a person's directional preference. Right, so depending if I'm a right-handed person or a left-handed person, the the prediction of direction it's going to be affected. When people are forced to make a turn at an intersection, right-handers, at least in the United States, prefer turning right, and left lefty prefers turning left. So, for example, and this is interesting, if you're in a store, right, one should look to the left, search for the um, shortest line of the people at stores, banks, and the like, meaning that usually left-sided um, lines tend to be shorter because most people are right-handed, so you're, they're going to look for um, lines on the, on the right side. Another phenomenon when it comes to looking and not always seeing is the expert's quiet eye. So, in fact, what we see is in part a function not only of who we are, but what we are. Researchers have demonstrated that different people can view the same scene in different ways. Say you're a golfer, for, for instance. Even better, say you're a great golfer with a low handicap. You're playing your body, who's not great. You've 
teed off and played through the fairway. And now it comes time to put. Do you and your body look at the ball in the same way? Yeah, probably not. Why? Because experts, not novices, novices, yeah, novados, yeah, you get what I'm saying, tend to look at things in different ways. One of these differences involves something known as the quiet eye period. This is the amount of time needed to accurately program motor response. It occurs between the last glimpse of our target and the first twitch of our nervous systems. So researchers have documented expert novice differences in quiet eye periods in a number of sports, ranging from shooting free throws in a basketball to show rifles in Olympic-style competition. The consistent finding is that experts maintain a longer quiet eye period. So in the final few seconds of the putt, good golfers with Low handicaps tend to gaze at the ball much longer and rarely shift their sight to the club or to any other location. Less skilled golfers, on the other hand, don't stare at the ball very long and tend to look at their club quite often. Superior vision is so important in golf that many of the world's best players, including Tiger Woods and at least seven other PGA Tour winners, have had LASIK surgery to correct their vision, usually to 20, 15, or better. What that means is that they can see clearly uh, at 20 feet at what people with 20-20 vision could see clearly only at 15 feet. This sport, there was a design here. Here we are, again, trying to increase the likelihood of detecting and seeing things clearly and, you know, focus and all of that, which is part of the the whole system. And companies have worked on improving, in, in this case, it's going to be the, the, the potter and all of that, in which you can design them in a way that it's going to help the golfer see better. Okay, let me give you this example. So Nike has even introduced a new potter, the IC, designed to reduce visual distractions, okay? And just to clarify something, this is a 2010 reference, okay? Remember, it's it's not a, a new book, but it, it's very good in terms of the of the content. So that's why I'm using it. So so they created this this pot designed to reduce visual distraction. The shaft and the grip of the potter are both green. Why? To blend in with the color of the grass and reduce distraction. But the leading edge of the blade and the T-shaped alignment line are blazing white to help focus the golfer eyes on the part of the club that contacts the ball. So here is another way of designing to, you know, eliminate sensory input from other areas that are not necessary than the green and the and the grass, and then trying to increase detection with another part, which is the white part. Another interesting concept when it comes to seeing is what it's called the change blindness. I don't know if you have seen, and I have seen in, in some TV shows and, and so on, that you have a person that it's, let's say, a store employee that it's helping you, right? And they talk to you, they explain what you're looking at, so they're helping you find what you're looking for in terms of shopping and so on. But then they distract the person and then they change the store clerk. And now you have a new one and the person would not notice. So let me explain that phenomenon. 
When we fail to detect major changes to the scenes, is that's what we are talking about with change blindness, okay? So there was a, a study um, that was performed some time ago, and the way it was designed was to have students, and this was in, in a school, to have students ask for uh, pedestrians for directions. So as you might suspect, the experiment involved a twist. As a stranger and the pedestrian talk, the experimenters arrange for them to rudely in be interrupted by two men who pass between them while carrying a door, all right? So all of a sudden, you cannot see the person that you're t talking to. The interruption is brief, lasting just one second. But during that one second, something important happened. One of the men carrying the door trades places with the stranger right? When the door is gone, the pedestrian is confronted with different person who continues the conversation as if nothing has happened. Would the pedestrians notice that they were talking to someone new? In most cases, it turns out the answer was not. Only seven of the 15 pedestrians reporting not noticing the change. So imagine... Now that we're talking all of this, and I know one episode, it's not going to be enough. So I'm going to do two parts here. If you think about it, when we talk about what we see and how what, what we interpret, the bias, I'm right-handed, I'm left-handed, I see this, I don't see this. Imagine juries. The jury. Can you imagine? You're seeing all of this. And there are a lot of things that I'm going to see differently from, from another juror. Right. So it's very scary to consider the fact that we might make mistakes in the interpretation of what we're seeing, which everybody's seeing the same thing. But what we interpret is going to be different. That could create a lot of issues. And that's why it's very scary to think about jury and, and a jury in a legal case and the fact that a person's, you know, life and, and freedom relies on this jury to make a good decision. So part of it is, you know, this is what you're seeing. This is the evidence. And, you know, the fact that we have to eliminate everything else that could affect the way we see that, it's something that it's very sensible or it's very subtle. And those differences could create a big different interpretations of the same facts. Another example before we close today, because we're going to continue and I'm, and I'm going to continue to discuss this topic because there is a lot of things that we can do, but I will cover it in part two. The other part that is very interesting that is in the book is what it's called movie mistakes, right? You, you, I don't know if this has happened to you. You're watching a movie and you can detect, well, this person was not there before or had the, you know, the hair in a different way. And then in the other scene comes back to the way it was before. So those are mistakes that are part of the editing process. You know, everybody makes mistakes. So of course you should expect those type of things to happen. But the problem is that there is an inspection for this. There is a process in which they look for this. It's the same concept of visual inspection, but I'm looking for a different thing in a different context. So in these cases, you are detecting those changes because you are, you know, you're looking at what's happening and you are detecting those changes. But the problem is that not all the time we see them. This type of mistakes is called continuity errors, okay? And these are errors that have been studied for a long time, and that's how they call it in the, you know, Hollywood or whatever industry. So these errors have long bedeviled the motion picture industry, okay? So let's, let's see this example. The Hollywood epic Ben-Hur is a good example, okay? The 1959 movie, which starred the late Charleston 
Heston as Ben-Hur, won 11 Academy Awards, more than any other movie at that point in, at that point in history, including one for Best Picture. But it still has its share of errors, especially in the famous chariot scene, which lasts for 11 minutes but took three months to film. During the chariot race, Mesala damages Ben Hurt's chariot with his saw tooth wheel hops. But at the end of the race, if you look closely, you will see that Ben Hurt's chariot appears undamaged. So, experts. In the industry, they acknowledge that it's not possible to capture everything. So what they do is let's just find the most important ones because we know we're going to miss things. And that's the idea. And that's what they do in these instances. So that's why when it comes to visual inspection, when it comes to seeing and not uh, looking at not seeing, we should understand that we are not very good at that. And, you know, understanding that, You can put barriers of defense and you can, you know, consciously say, I'm going to look and I'm going to look for all of these things. You are going to get better every time you do exercises. You know, do, for example, you know, detect the differences. Those exercises increase the likelihood of detection because you're exercising, focusing, looking for something in particular. So those are very good exercises. And there are other things that can be done that I will talk in the next episode, but I just wanted to start sharing this. This is a very, very good topic. And I'm learning every day when it comes to to this topic. So let's just leave this for now right here. And we will continue on the next one. All right. So thank you so much for listening. Remember to subscribe, share, and also make sure that you find me on LinkedIn. Our uh, company is Human Error Solutions. You can also find us there at humanerrorsolutions.com. For now, I say bye and until next time. Take it away. Thanks for listening to The Power of Why with your host, Jeanette Collazo. Make sure you subscribe to the show and share. And also, you can send us an email to thepowerofwhypodcast at gmail.com. We hope you enjoyed this episode and that you will join us next time.